Hello everyone, welcome to Random Encounter 277 or 277. The future is here, and I'm not just saying that because we are talking about games set among the stars today. So uh, I got really bored a few days ago, and I thought, hey, why not install the public betas onto my iPad and my iPhone? And for the record, this is a spectacularly stupid idea, and you should not do it. Because if something goes wrong, and these are your primary devices, then you're screwed. But I was really bored. And I went online and folks have been saying that these current public betas are really super stable. So I figured, what the hell? Uh, and I played, I was playing around with them. And uh, so there's some really good features in there. But one of them was, I remember that there was a voice cloning feature uh, that was in it. And I, I, I could not help myself. So I sat down for 15 minutes and with iOS, just recording my voice saying a variety of things. And then I let it run overnight and in the morning, my voice was on the uh, was on the iPad. So uh, from this point going forward, all of my appearances on RPG Fan Podcast will be my AI voice copy. So we're going to restart the episode and we're going to have him uh, voice the episode. So here we go. Hello and welcome to Random Encounter 277 or 277. My name is Jonah Logan and the podcast doors are open. Yeah. What? So uh, what do you think? Huh? That's like not bad. It's uh, I could barely even tell that it wasn't me. It was like having an out of, out of body experience. Uh, hang on. Let's see here. Uh, just to just to convince you more. Yakuza is great. Yep. There's something else. Uh, hang on. Let's see here. Let's see. Sava sucks. Yep. This is definitely me. Um, anyway, honestly, I would never let an AI take over for me, and not just because I love being the host of this podcast, but also because it would deny me the pleasure of chatting with my guests today. So first up, we have Noah. Hello, Noah. Hi, Jono. And this is your first time on this or any other RPG fan podcast. It is indeed. And uh, you've picked a good episode to come on because we're going to be talking about some big stuff. Uh, and we also have Caitlin with us here today. Hey, Caitlin. Hey there. Okay, so now that we're through all of the silliness, let's talk about frankly, two of the biggest RPGs of the year, some of the biggest games for RPG fans, uh, but they might be, you know, the biggest games for different reasons. They're both highly anticipated. They've been highly anticipated for many years now, and they both have the word star in the title. So the first one we're going to talk about is with Noah, and it's going to be Starfield. So uh, Starfield is the latest game from Bethesda Game Studios, which is primarily known for the Sky, you know, Skyrim, Elder Scrolls, the Fallout series. Uh, it was first announced back at E3 in 2018, so it's been a few years since the announcement. Uh, Bethesda seems to have a habit of announcing things a little early. Um, Todd Howard, the game's director, mentioned a, a while ago that the game's actually been in development since 2013, which is quite a 10-year development period. Uh, and it was initially slated for November 11th, 2022. Unsurprisingly, like most massive games of this size, it was delayed and delayed and delayed. Uh, until it was finally released uh, in September of 2023. And uh, considering Bethesda's, uh, shall we say, uh, reputation for having slightly buggy games, the fact that this was delayed for so long is probably a good thing. It's been getting what can only be called a passionately mixed reception online, with some reviewers giving it 100 and others giving it a 70 or so, like anywhere in that range. Now, uh, today we have somebody who was on the high end of that range and just friggin' loved it. So, uh, Noah, what is your personal history with Bethesda games in the past? Yeah, I, I've i been playing Bethesda games for a uh, what some might consider to be a very long time, and others perhaps a short time, but I've been playing since um, The Elder Scrolls Oblivion in uh, 2007. That wasn't that long ago. That wasn't that long ago, was it? Oh, yeah. yeah it was Game of the Year, I think, from a lot of publications <laughs> that year. Um, so, bit of an old one. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Might have been 2006, actually. I don't know. But regardless, I've been playing Bethesda games pretty passionately ever since. I've played, you know, Fallout 3 and 4. I played Oblivion. I played Skyrim. Played a ton of Skyrim mods. um, And now Starfield, uh, which is sort of an incredible... Uh, microcosm of all of those games, but also like an evolution um, of the games as well. Yeah, you and I are going to be talking about modding a little bit later because I have a I have a lot of thoughts about modding. Um, here's a question for you, just based on it's been okay. We're recording this on uh, the day that the embargo went up, so uh, it's yes. been fascinating to watch all of the different takes of Starfield and watching the let's just call it the argument online. I am under the opinion that it is actually impossible to review a Bethesda game in a vacuum and not just because, you know, this one's set in space. Um, There is so much baggage attached to Bethesda games and so much online baggage as well in terms of very, very meme-worthy ideas that, you know, the flying horses and falling through the world maps and just general bugginess and the whole disaster with Fallout 76, that it's kind of, it's kind of become very uh, fashionable to hate on Bethesda. Um, Do you think that that might be one of the reasons why the reviews are so all over the place is because, you know, some people love Bethesda and some people just want to see them fail. Well, I certainly don't want to take anything away from the reviewers, like personal agencies, um, Mm. because I think they all sort of have uh, their own um, valid uh, internal thoughts on the games and, and opinions Okay, let's 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 ignore those. Let's ignore the the professionals and the and the, and the amateur uh, the the passionate amateurs who are you know really working hard and riven writing a lot of words in a very short amount of time and working very hard to get this. Let's just refer to the random yahoos online who are uh, invading chat threads to dis to passionately decry uh, the game and express their displeasure without having even played it. Yeah, I mean this. This is sort of part of the the whole like uh, you know treatment of game devs thing. I, I, I think that there's there's a sort of misconception of Bethesda uh, game studios and their games where you know people people sort of just see the exterior, um, the the pieces of the game that would be reviewed by uh, you know I don't know like The Last of Us or something like that mm. um, as uh, you know like integral to the experience you know mm-hmm. uh the, the the games with like linear stories have to have um really well-made textures and animations and such because they need to have impactful moments in their linear structure they need to have their um stories have these beats right um and that's tough <clears throat> to do when you sort of get broken out and out out, out, of, the, out of the fourth wall into um the stratosphere but bethesda games are inherently designed differently they're designed to be uh these games that are sort of places for people to play you know they're they're designed for modding they're designed for like um you know just i don't know sort of intrinsically rewarding imagination experiences uh and i don't think that like I think that they could be masterpieces and be buggy. And I think that some people have sort of an endearing attitude towards the bugginess. <laughs> they have um, a love even for the bugginess. I mean, I look back at like video game donkeys, ultimate Skyrim from years ago and how, you know, just all of the, it was basically just a showcase of like mods and bugs and, and, you know, all the funny 
you know, mishaps of playing Skyrim. And, and, uh, I think that there's sort of a beauty, um, that comes, you know, side to side with, uh, the drawbacks of having a, a bit of a jankier experience. As yeah. It were. There's a high level of memeability about a lot exactly. of these bugs that it, it's just fun. Yeah. It's part of the narrative experience, you know, like games are, are about stories, not just as much as they're about like the story within the game. They're about the stories that we, you know, tell each other about our own experiences uh, with the game. And that's part of it, you know, talking about all the like fun, weird, quirky things that happen in the game. So, well, all of this said, let's actually talk about, you know, the game. So frankly speaking you just diving right into your bottom line you gave it a 98 you called this game a masterpiece um i'm just curious as to why uh not because i want you to defend it but why is this game a masterpiece because it does exactly what it sets out to do perfectly i think and it also fits into my own sort of personal desires for a video game i mean i think that that's the reason why anyone gives any game a high score is because uh, it's just their vibe, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's Skyrim in space, right? It's the thing that Todd Howard promised us years ago. It's the thing we've all been sort of like discussing amongst amongst one another. Um, and all of the reviewers have been sort of saying Skyrim in space um, too, which is so funny. Uh, but it it also it, it's it's a playground. It's it's a sort of other space um, to immerse oneself in. And it succeeds in every way at being that. Well, Phil Spencer uh, is, is, on, is quoted as saying, well, actually, he quoted Todd Howard as saying that the game was irresponsibly large. So with that in mind, it's uh, an irresponsibly large playground, a toy box, so to speak. Mm, yes. And that is something that I think many, many people love about these games. Now, an interesting factor about a lot of Bethesda games is uh, the main storyline is sort of beside the point of a Bethesda game. But what's the main storyline here about? I think in this game, it actually is sort of the opposite. I think it sort of is the point. It, I, I, I mean, I don't want to get into spoilers too much of it. Um, hmm. But, you know, the main story sort of follows the player character as they join this organization called Constellation and Constellation is looking for these very mysterious um, artifacts, which are, you know, sort of rocky puzzle pieces um, that have gravitational distortions around them and sort of float on their own merit um, and give the player hallucinations and, and such. So, yeah, you know, that that's the main driving force of, of the story there. But the story is is more of a meta narrative uh, than anything about the, the process of making a game that's irresponsibly large. Uh, the process of undergoing any project that has a scope that's just unimaginably enormous. Um, and I, I mean, again, I don't want to spoil too much here, but the game doesn't really start really until you get into NG+. You know, obviously you build your skill level up and, and so on and get used to the game systems by then. But it's also sort of where the narrative takes takes its first big turn hmm. um, is when you hit NG+. And I think that because of that, it, it sort of ties the main thread into all the other parts of the game a little bit more robustly because you're, as a player character, probably going to be running through multiple NG pluses 
um, and running through the story beats, uh, you know, repeatedly, they will be different, you know, each time remarkably. Um, but you'll be running through the, the story beats repeatedly in order to like do these side activities, um, and sort of visit higher level systems and, uh, engage in different kinds of space combat and, and on foot combat and, um, gain access to like, you know, uh, ship building and base building and so on. Um, you have to, you kind of have to engage with this story, uh, which is something I don't think Bethesda games really do. Some, I think most of the titles up to this point, um, have been, you know, barring maybe the really early ones like arena have been more about like, it just puts you out into this world and, and it just says like, whatever you want, man, just go do that. Well, that was, it's interesting because that was one of the, uh, major criticisms. And this one, I actually agree with, uh, fallout four, which is brilliant opening segment. And it comes up with this amazing storyline and like, you, it's, you know, you, 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 you get out of the vault and everything and you're like, okay, I got to find Sean. And then you start walking and you're like, Ooh, a quarry. And you know, that that's kind of, Oh, look at this farm over here. There's a town. And <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, your baby's missing, but also this guy needs your help to, to, uh, kill some Myra lurks in a quarry. So that needs to take precedence. So the fact that that always created a bit of dissonance for me in that particular game. Uh, it's unimaginable to like parents, right? Like the amount of it's, it's called Ludo narrative dissonance in games where like the story and, and sort of like the gameplay don't really match up. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just like a parent playing Fallout 4 being like, I would not do anything, but find my <laughs> child. That would be, Number one and two, three, four, five, six priority mm. on my priority list. Like, I, I'm not going to build this base or help this random dude. Like, no, I'm going to go find my kid, which is just yeah. so funny to me. Yeah. Why would you explore the uh, old abandoned car factory? Um, yeah. Well, you explore it because that's the best part of the game. Um, and for me, that's for me in Bethesda games, that's sort of why I play them, which is for me, the side content and the environmental storytelling. Uh, create the overall experience of playing the game. Um, how is the environmental storytelling in this? Uh, it's as good as it's ever been in, in any good, good Bethesda game. Um, you know, it's got it's got all the classic like bodies in weird places. You know, like putting a skull in the toilet. Like that's yeah, <laughs> this really evocative like, image of of gee, environmental what happened storytelling. Here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, but it it also has it also has some really funny like. Uh, I don't know, bait and switch moments with environmental storytelling that I think are are really fun. Like it has a bunch of classic literature in it, which, you know, is, is, uh, is free domain, like public domain, all of it, mm. like Charles Dickens and, and, you know, like 1800s poetry and stuff is all, uh, free. So there's a reason why they used it. Um, but they pick like really poetic sections of all these old books, um, you know, like Tale of Two Cities or Great Expectations or, um, you know, whatever. And they put them in random places. They put them in places that don't seem random, funny enough, um, you know, like in the locker of like a major character um, so that you sort of like. It, it, it sort of encourages you to think about it as if it's some sort of metaphor for the characters like behavior or something mm-hmm. um but it really is sort of random it actually in, in actuality it's kind of random 
Um, and I do, I do love little nods like that um, of like, I don't know, fake environmental storytelling maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. Although that's not really what it is. It's just like. I think I understand what you mean. Yeah, it's a way of the player or, you know, letting the player engage themselves in making the metaphor mm-hmm. uh, between Moby Dick and the space pirate who has a copy of Moby Dick in his office. Okay, well, we've been talking about the game and we've been talking about what the game represents. Why don't we cut to the chase and say, how does the game actually play? Yeah, so this is this is the fun part of the conversation where we actually get to talk about the jank, right? The Bethesda <laughs> jank that everybody loves or hates, you know, or pretends to hate or makes mm-hmm. fun of as if it's like the nickelback of video games. I haven't heard that, but yeah, that's a pretty apt that's a pretty apt comparison. Yeah. Um sort of the lightning rod uh of gaming. Yeah, it, it's it's there. It's not not there, is mm-hmm. is I guess what I'm saying. But it's not as present as it has been in in a lot of previous titles. I it's it's as minimal as it's ever been in any Bethesda Game Studios game I've ever played, um, which is to say Oblivion to Now. Um, so it, it, I don't know. What, what I'm saying is that it's the least amount of jank a Bethesda Game Studios game has ever had. And um, I think that that's, a, that's the right direction, right? Like it seems that they have mm-hmm. sort of like figured out um, the creation engine systems in a way that they can still give it public access to people so they can make content with it i mean to be honest i'm I'm, if they haven't figured out the creation engine yet um that's that's been a point of controversy controversy about bethesda is they will not let go of this damn engine they just keep upgrading it and upgrading and upgrading it i think it's important i think it's key to their entire thing it's you know it's sort of like the source engine was so key to valve's like entire economic model like Mm. if you think about um when they first released steam, it was all just like source engine stuff. It was just, you know, half-life and portal and, and counter-strike and Gary's mod and, and, and all these other like creations of that engine. Um, and they weren't, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that valve as an early studio was a game dev studio. It was, it was a source engine studio. They made this like really cool engine and just like gave it to the players. And I think that Bethesda has a similar, model um where they have made the creation engine as this way for players to engage with their content um in the way that they uh think is compelling you know it's it's i don't know it's it's a game where you can like pick up any object which is cool and a lot of engines can't really do that in a performative Mm way um but it's also an engine that allows you to um craft your own experiences really easily and quickly, um, mm-hmm. such as the source engine sort of was uh, back in the day. Well, so. it's interesting that I think there's a certain level of disingenuousness uh, from the internet. I mean, God knows there's a lot of that on the internet, but specifically about this game, which is it's Bethesda. So there are a lot of people who are looking at it and they're just waiting for like something to break or for there to be a bug. So for example, uh, in your review at one point you mention. uh, you mentioned that one of the bugs you face is that people's hair disappeared. They suddenly became bald. And there are people out there who are pointing at that and saying, oh, Bethesda, look, they screwed it up. But the reality is that Baldur's Gate 3 came out a few weeks ago, and apparently after the first act, it was a buggy disaster. But they didn't get the same level of uh, scrutiny or hate over it because they aren't Bethesda. So I think that people are 
looking as closely as possible at this game and just every little thing that goes wrong every time that some that a character walks into a wall they go ha 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 look at that and it's like well that's true of all triple a and double a gaming nowadays like they're, they're so big it's impossible to squash all the bugs it will come the game will be if not flawless at least close to it it's just going to take a little while oh yeah i i also don't want to pretend that gaming hasn't kind of always been this way mm. and if it wasn't like bugginess it was like weird difficulty spikes or questionable like gameplay style choices um so i think that that sort of jank has always existed and i think that the fixation on bethesda's jank um is largely a consequence of their like communication mishaps of the past Mm. um 76 really yeah 76 76 hurts uh you know, it just, it hurts the fans and it hurts Bethesda. Yeah, it would have been better if they had, well, that's actually something that I found very interesting, which is they really pulled out the uh, red carpet when it came to uh, Fallout 76. And I remember at the time, just before it was released, they they reached out to all of the Fallout uh, modders and, co- and people who covered it on YouTube, and they invited them to the actual hotel that's in Fallout 76 and they gave them previews of the game and they like invited them into the actual vault and they they really did a massive push for a game which frankly didn't deserve it um and their their uh how they've been handling marketing of Starfield has been a little bit more restrained and I don't think that's a bad thing but realistically speaking from everything I've read and your review and everything I've heard this game deserves more credit than it's getting I think I agree. I think the game is is about something that that some people maybe aren't sort of getting at. I think it's about a similar thing that um, No Man's Sky was about. No Man's Sky is is a game that systems are pretty similar to um, Starfields. It's, it's narrative. I think is it, there's a lot of comparisons for sure. But but one of the ways in which I think No Man's Sky and Starfield are the same product is that. They both have a misconception of what they are trying to be. No Man's Sky is not, it's not this roller coaster ride. It's not like a linear narrative where you're like, you know, in like a shiny ship and just like blasting through this like point by point thing. Um, It's more of a cardboard box. It's Mm. more of a thing that you could paint and mold and shape yourself to be like whatever star faring adventure you want it to be. Um, and I don't know, a roller coaster can't go into space, but a cardboard box can in your imagination. Um, and I think that it, you know, it was a game that got reviewed as a roller coaster, as Hmm. a game with linear components, um, with like, you know, components of, of sort of the model itself that needed to be evaluated, um, that, you know, are, are like boxes that get checked on any game, you know, mm-hmm. like what are the visuals like? Is it buggy? Like, um, does it have compelling sound design, et cetera, et cetera, where it should have been reviewed more as a cardboard box because that's sort of what it is. It's this like flimsy, short lived, but, <laughs> but wildly imaginative and, and, and high potential experience. Um, and I think this, that, I think that Starfield's sort of a similar thing. I think that it is in its own way. Um, a cardboard box. I, I do think that there was a roller coaster that came in the cardboard box that is Starfield um, because it does have a really compelling sort of linear story. But I mean, who knows what's going to happen with DLC? We might get Nuka World at some point. That would have a roller I mean, coaster. 
that would have a roller coaster. That would have a literal, you know, like you know, in the game roller coaster. Um, but no, I, I, I suppose that it's it's an imagination space mm. more than it is um, a traditional linear experience. Um, and I just sort of worry that it gets maybe pushback because some some people are are, are conceiving it um, in the opposite way. I think that it. I think a lot of people do. Obviously. I might be slightly unfair to uh, the internet as a whole uh, because I've seen a lot of people who are super, super excited about this game. And I've seen a lot of people who are extremely negative about this game. And I don't necessarily think that both sides might have a point. The one, the people I have a problem with are the ones who are expressing that viewpoint uh, to get a reaction. But that's just my irrational hatred of bullying. Um I'll tell you something that about this game, looking at the screenshots and the footage, that really did impress me, which is uh, Bethesda seems to have got squeezed quite a bit out of the old uh, creation engine in terms of the visuals. Uh, I remember back when Fallout 76 was announced and released, Todd made a lot of claims about how they pushed forward the engine and how it, the fidelity is so much higher in it. And the reality is you play Fallout 76 and it's, just, it's a bloody Fallout 4. It looks like Fallout 4. It looks exactly like Fallout 4. It looks like Fallout 4. Actually, it looks worse than Fallout 4 because it doesn't have any mods. Um, but here, so true. Yeah, but here, they. Uh, it seems like they've really pushed it pretty far. It's a pretty cool visual. The visual style of this game is very interesting. You call it, what was it, Nasacore? I think that's their language. I think uh, that was something that they called it. And I think <laughs> that that was where I, I sort of pulled that that term from. But it, that's what it is. It's Nasacore. It's, um, you know very much you know like moon landing hardware and 2001 a space odyssey you know like it, it very much has this 1960s um space tech look through all of it it's interesting because another game that you very very recently actually reviewed just before this which i thought was i think this is such a super interesting thing and i'm, I'm very interested to get your take on it just before this, you reviewed the complete package of The Outer Worlds uh, yes. with all the DLC and everything. And when The Outer Worlds was released, Starfield was already in the public consciousness and everyone was like, Obsidian's going to eat Bethesda's lunch. Um, now, The Outer Worlds, frankly, The Outer Worlds plays like, it plays like they had the license for Firefly and then they lost it. And then they just, you know, changed a few tiny little things and released the game anyway. Um, it feels like a much more dirty uh, frontier style world where this doesn't appear like that. This appears much more like a, a cleaner sci-fi future. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it's also a little more positive. I think the outer world's sci-fi future is a little more oppressive. Um, oh, it's a dystopia. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a corporate dystopia. Um, and I think that Starfield sort of benefits from that. I think Starfield is more about space vibes um, and in my eyes, that's the thing that I kind of wanted from, um, you know, the, the, the former space game from Outer Worlds, um, but didn't get as much of, I mean, Outer Worlds has admittedly Outer Worlds sort of did eat Bethesda's lunch in a few ways. Um, the combat, I mean, it, it, is, it ate its lunch about five years ago, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is sort of the caveat there. Uh, but yeah, it did. It's, it's combat is really compelling. Um, it uses like a slow down time mechanic that as I was playing Starfield, I was just like desperate 
uh, <laughs> to have. Um, I kept pressing the right button, just like expecting. Why is that's not working? Yeah, I know. Like what? It, it in the early game, it actually really, really needs that. How much money do you want to bet that one of the very first, very first mods that's released for this game is going to be that? Oh man, that's got to be. Uh, oh yes, I, I think that this is going to be something people will universally see as as being the reality that in an early game it's really tough yeah. uh, to do the combat. Like it takes a lot of getting used to, and the early game guns are are a little too terrible. They don't they don't control well. They're, the recoil is too high, and they don't do much damage. So you end up doing these long battles where you use up all of your ammo um, early on. And it, that could be alleviated by having a VATS or a time slow system. I imagine they were trying to get away from that, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's the reason why they didn't, um, choose to do that. I bet they might've even had some version of that in their early stages. And they're like, damn it. Outer worlds did it before we were going to do it. <laughs> um, no, I don't think that there's any, any competition between between the two, but uh, perhaps that was a consideration. Um, I think Outer Worlds also eats Bethesda's lunch um, in like a few of its more um, homespun sort of a la carte locations. You know, mm-hmm. the Outer Worlds has pretty universal like visual style um, throughout all of its zones. And there are some places that are really, really just beautiful um and oh, yeah. you know starfield has a lot of barren planets like places that are just going to have like a couple of resources or just like a single scan or like mm-hmm. desert worlds or something and and while those places certainly have their own beauty but it it it, it sort of feels a little emptier in in some spots um and so those who are looking for that more a la carte experience um mm-hmm. might be better served by outer worlds honestly uh i mean and the Outer World, comparing the Outer Worlds and Starfield, it feels a little unfair in a way. Because first off, Outer Worlds was pretty buggy when it first released. I should know. Nice. I reviewed it. Um, and it was a double-A gaming experience, whereas obviously Starfield is triple-A. So the worlds of the Outer World are much more limited in scope. It's not a, it's an open-world game slightly, but it's not the same level of scope that starfield has and also mm-hmm. from my understanding the tones are extremely different because the outer worlds was in many ways uh considered to be a spiritual successor to uh new vegas i mean it was developed by obsidian um whereas starfield doesn't seem like it's shooting for that same uh fallout satirical tone that the outer worlds does so well it feels like it's going for something very different yeah, hundred percent. It's it's not nearly as cynical for sure as the Outer Worlds is, um, and it's not nearly as like you know focused on I don't know like moral lessons maybe or takeaways. Um, it's a game more about vibes for mm-hmm. sure, and I I think that you know, I, I think that that does sort of come through in the visual style and elements, but that isn't to say that Starfield isn't like also a really gorgeous game that, <laughs> that has strong motifs and, you know, like compelling narratives and such. Um, it's just a little bit more apparent with the outer worlds. Well, speaking of uh, motifs, why don't we talk a little bit about the sound design and the music of this game? Uh, because Bethesda's always had very, very strong sound design and, in my opinion, some absolutely excellent acting. So let's start with the voice acting. How's the, how's the acting in this game? 
Mm, chef's kiss. Ah, it is excellent. so good. Excellent. It is best in class, honestly. And I don't know who the like narrative designers and writers are over at Bethesda, but uh, it's clear that that they have learned from sort of the entirety of the industry and in how to craft a you know a really cool like fun narrative space. Um, you know, I'm thinking like Bioware in the age of like <laughs> Knights of the Old Republic, you know, like mm-hmm. just great dialogue options, you know, all the actors sort of seem to be in tune with the scene that they're in, which is rare in games of this scope, right? Like you'll get an actor who's like, who has to say a line in sort of an angry tone and they'll say it in like a, like a happy go lucky normal tone. And you'll be like, well, that was weird, mm-hmm. but that just doesn't exist here. Like it's well-directed. It's well-written. Um, the actors just like knock it out of the park. That's really nice to hear. How's the music? Oh, and the music. Oh man. I gave, I gave the game a 100 by the way, um, for sound. Um, and, and that is because it's just, it knocks it out of the park in all categories. I mean, the soundtrack Mm -hmm. is just like, I don't know. Oblivion is clearly my favorite Bethesda game because it was my first one. And Mm -hmm. just that, that song that you hear when you turn it on and like, it's got this like, you know, overhead camera that goes over Cyrodiil and it's just so like, I don't know, pristine and beautiful and, and placid. And uh, I don't know, you just, you, you can just feel like you're in the space. Um, Mm -hmm. Starfield soundtrack is also the same thing. It's very, um, it's very orchestral, like all of the other sort of modern Bethesda games are, but it's also like, sort of mysterious sounding and somber and um, playful when it needs to be. It's beautiful. And, and there's so many tracks. I, I just, every, every, every part of the world that I was in had a, had like multiple sort of, I don't know, tunes that went with it. I mean, I went into neon city, which is um, this uh, very, I don't know, like cyberpunky sort of space, <laughs> Um, where my character incidentally was from in the game and there's a club who has a DJ and that DJ has got it. I mean, there's gotta be like six or seven songs because I went into that space, you know, a dozen times and didn't hear the same song more than once. That's Uh, awesome. So, which is so, so much, you know? Yeah. How much do you want to bet again, putting money on this, that one of the very first mods that's going to be released for this is going to be neon city radio that just plays atom bomb baby nonstop. Oh, that would be so cool, man. If your spaceship had a radio and you could just like listen to, um, Oh, I can't even remember the name of the pop artist now, but listen to that, like DJ's music. Oh, it'd be yep. so cool. I'm a little surprised Bethesda didn't do that actually, but, um, I mean, that can come. Um, Caitlin, I'm sorry we're running a little long on Starfield, but there's so much to talk about, and you will get the equal amount of time. So, uh, because I'm super excited to talk about Sea of Stars as well. So, really quickly, just real quick before we talk a little bit about modding, um, how do, you played the game on uh, a number of different platforms, actually. So, you played it. You the code we had uh, worked for Xbox Series X, and it also worked for PC. So, and then you also gave it a shot on uh, what was your what's your portable? It's not the Steam Deck. It's uh, RG Ally. RG Ally. How does it play on all of them? Um, well, it barely ran on the RG Ally. I did manage to get it going on that, but I don't think handheld tech is sort of at the place where it can play a game as as vast as Starfield. Um, mm-hmm. 
Starfield is one of the most gorgeous games I've ever played because it's got so much going on. It's got all of the like trappings of modern graphic design. Um, it's got like all the lighting tools and all of the like focus and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also got, you know, like a huge amount of assets and animations going on at the same time. So it's just not a, it's a game that sort of breaks, um, you know, devices that don't have much computing power. I, I sort of worry that it won't run well on Series S. I've read a few stories that says it runs fine. Yeah, yeah that that is a little sort of surprising. But I, whenever I did play it on ROG Ally and it, it and it did work, it did look pretty good. I mean, it looked cool. looked like a bit of a lower res version. Um, yeah, obviously. And, the frame rate was like 20 frames per second. I mean, you're running a 3080, right? On your yeah. PC? And, and so, yeah, my PC ran it fantastic, though. Excellent. It was like, I mean, my, my monitor's not 4K, um, so I, it's 1440p, um, but it is 120 hertz, so it could go up to that. Um, and I was able to run it at max settings, and it was hitting at least 60 frames per second the entire time. And that was the way that I preferred to play, actually, because mm-hmm. um, I have a Series X as well, um, which it, it runs like butter on there and looks great 4K, full HDR. Um, but it is 30 frames per second. It's, it's locked at 30 because of, mm-hmm. you know, the just immense amount of assets in that game. Well, I think that like for me, for example, I'm, I don't have an Xbox, but even if I did, I wouldn't be playing it on my Xbox. I'd be playing it on my PC because first off, I like, I like using keyboard mouse when I play uh, FPS style games, but also because mods. Um, and while there are, there is technically modding uh, for Bethesda games on on consoles. The reality is that it's it's a PC world. Um, so I I am the kind of person who I, I played Fallout Four on release day, um, and then over time I modded the crap out of it. Um, and I modded also New Vegas and and three and. Um, I love mods. Uh, some of the fan creations are on par with or exceed Bethesda's actual visions of these games and add things that, frankly speaking, weren't possible when Bethesda uh, released it. So let's just take Fallout 4, for example. I'm, I'm sure that you have your own experience with Fallout 4 and the best of mods. But like it, it runs everything from like the unofficial Fallout 4 patch, which is a fan mod that is exactly what it sounds like. It fixes much of the bugginess of the game. Uh, and then you have uh, things that just improve textures, for example, enhance blood textures, uh, you know, high definition, uh, high definition textures and things like that. Uh, you have like delete everything where you can actually delete everything instead of the pre instead of, you know, what Bethesda allows you to in settlements. And then you have uh, creation materials that create entirely new storylines, new characters, uh, brand new quests. And some of these are DLC sized and some of these exceed it. Like, have you played Sim Settlements? No. Holy crap, man. You've got to, if you are looking, if you're feeling a little bit of whiplash after this and you're like, I just want to play some more Bethesda, download Fallout 4 again and download the newest version of Sim Settlements, Sim Settlements 2. It cha- it completely it, it completely changes the settlement system utterly uh, to create a much more well, SimCity style with plot systems. So you don't build the, you don't build houses or design them, you build plots. And you can assign uh, various settlers to plots and give them jobs specifically. And your city will develop organically uh, outward. And there's an entirely new plot line uh, alongside it where that actually expands the gunners into something that makes sense rather than just be a bunch of random yahoos that are you know around 
the wasteland. Yeah, I think that there's some DNA of that actually in, in uh, Starfield because you know the the settlement system in that game is is, is a lot more centered around like who you're mm-hmm. putting in the settlement, who are the settlers in the settlements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of like what strengths do they have? What sort of weapons are they specialized in? Um, mm-hmm. and you also get that top down view. I mean, you don't make <laughs> plots, right. That they just settle on. Um, mm-hmm. you do still build the buildings yourself, but you, you know, you don't have to like walk around and mm-hmm. put things on the ground anymore. Um, which is really nice. Sim settlements is just one example of the absolute insane things that modders do with Bethesda games. Yeah. Well, there's also, uh, the Skyrim mod forgotten city, oh. which, which became, you know, the one Forgotten of the top City. games of uh, the last couple of years. It was at, I'm pretty sure it was at the Game Awards um, and might have won or been nominated for some awards. Um, it became its own standalone game. Yeah, I played it uh, last year. It was ex- it was exceptional. Yeah, I mean, I played the mod. I didn't play the, the, the regular game, but I'm sure it was just, the mod was just one of the best. Oh, you got to play, game. you got to play the full game, especially if you have any interest in, uh, in uh, Roman mythology, yeah, it's it's so good. I remember I bullied Corey into reviewing it for the site. Well, I bullied him into reviewing it for the site. He did it happily, and he loved it. Um, so, I guess my question for you is: uh, this is the last question I'll ask. Where do you think modding could go with Starfield? Because Fallout seventy six modding was promised; it never arrived. They sort of replaced it with Creation Club, but Creation Club isn't modding. Let's face it; it's, it, people call it paid mods. It's not. It's it's freaking DLC. In my, in my mind, a modification of a game is a fan modification of the game, at least in the context of Bethesda. Where do you think Starfield could take modding in the future? Well, to put it poetically, I suppose, it could cascade into the infinite. Um, it could it could go anywhere. I mean, you can make your own stars and you can make your own sort of planets and stories. And I mean, you could just do anything, you know, you could, I mean, hell, you could make it a fantasy game, you know, you could just mm. put you know, like a Skyrim planet in the game where there's a bunch of old swords and stuff like that. And um, I don't know. The thing that I'm excited for is like, you know, inspiration from other science fiction media. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking like lightsabers, of course, would be cool. But I'm also thinking (laughs) like uh, things that aren't necessarily part of this like Western science fiction meta, you know, where we have like, settling is like a big component of it there's this this motif of the cowboy which sam coho is very much representative of um but you know it's it's not a game that dabbles in some of the other motifs of like science fiction of other parts of the world you know where it's maybe about like finding god or infinity or like um just exploration um so you want this game to answer the eternal question what does god need with a starship yes exactly um although it does a little bit answer that question maybe i, I yeah i don't know well, shatner was shatner must be jealous yeah i know right he never um, found out so poor guy um yeah poor I, guy. didn't even get to fight his rock monsters <laughs> yeah i uh i also want more like intelligent aliens that would be a really cool um, mm-hmm. mod to put in there because um, Starfield being a sort of like NASA core game uh, I think makes the purposeful choice to have intelligent life in the universe be um, entirely or almost entirely human um, mm. which it's is, not running the Mass Effect style of 
other no, races. no, but even Mass Effect, man, like I, one of my personal criticisms of Math, Mass Effect is just the like humanification of uh, alien races in that game where most races are sort of humanoid uh, looking. Um, I just want some like intelligent, weird space spiders or something like that. Um, like weird space ooze is mm-hmm. like uh, the most intelligent species. That would be cool. Um, but maybe like a first contact moment story mod would be really cool. Oh, those are definitely coming. Oh yeah. And I mean, it'll be a few years, but come back in five years and the game that you play when fully modded, uh, will resemble the original, I bet, but I think it will be uh, a much deeper experience depending on what mods, of course you download. Um, I guess my last question for you is that there have been a lot of hyped titles over the last few years and that, that have been announced and were coming are coming and they're delayed and they're delayed. Uh, the most infamous being, of course, Cyberpunk 2077. How do you feel that Starfield delivers on its promises in a way that games like Cyberpunk 2077 didn't? I think Starfield didn't overpromise. Um, I think that they said, yeah, we got a thousand planets. Um, you can go sort of wherever you want. Um, but they were pretty clear about the, uh, the mechanics of doing so. Um, they were clear from the beginning that like space and the planets themselves are different spaces and you can't just like bop back and forth. Um, you know, Mm -hmm. that you land in parts of the planet and it's, it becomes its own um, sort of smaller uh, procedurally generated space. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think Starfield was clear about it and they, they set expectations uh, for what their story was going to be. They set expectations for uh, the visual style of the game. When they showed gameplay of the game itself, it was like raw gameplay from the game. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the thing that comes to mind is like the the gameplay video that showcases uh, like on foot combat where you've got the guy with the jetpack uh, sort of jumping over everybody and shooting um, these like pirates or whatever they are, enemy characters. Um, and that's, I mean, by the time I was finished playing the game, that's pretty much how I was playing. I was using the jetpack <laughs> a lot. I was sort of getting over people. You know, and and that's what the game looked like while I was playing it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just a communication thing. I think Bethesda didn't overpromise. I mean, weirdly enough, they they made an irresponsibly large uh, game and uh, still were able to deliver the thing that they told us they would. That is really nice to hear. And this is a game that, funny enough, uh, the minimum. The minimum specs listed on the Steam page happen to match the exact specifications of my own uh, slightly aging PC, um, right down to the right down to my CPU um, and graphics card. So at some point in the near future, I really need to upgrade because I want to play this game because I love Bethesda games, um, and I am, I mean, God knows, I I have hammered Fallout seventy six deser- deservedly for years, um, but exploring the world of fallout 76 and the environmental storytelling and discovering the new places and just being dropped into these uh incredibly imaginative open worlds i still loved that experience with 76 and i love that experience with all the bethesda games that i played and the fact that there's a new one that's exciting to me 
And I think that this game, whatever it is right now, uh, you gave it a 98. Other people have given it a 70. Um, whatever it is right now, I don't think that that is going to be the legacy of this game. I think this game is going to change in a lot of ways due to fans. If Bethesda is smart, it will change because of fans. If they try locking modding down again uh, with Creation or with Cre- Creation Club and stuff like that, that might be different. But if they let the game evolve organically like they did Fallout 3, New Vegas, uh, 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 Skyrim, or 4, I think that this game is going to be something incredible in the next few years. And it sounds like it's already incredible. It's going to go from infinite to even more infinite. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, Noah, thank you for uh, joining me today and for specifically plowing through this massive game in a very short time frame where we hit the embargo. And uh, that was not easy. So thank you for well, doing it. I, I did my really best. appreciate it. I appreciate you, uh, your appreciation. I did you, absolutely, you absolutely nailed it. Well, um, okay. Now that we have trekked across a field of stars, let us dive into a sea of them. So Caitlin, you are here and you reviewed Sea of Stars. Now, this is a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting title. Uh, it's from Sabotage Studio. It is a retro style pixel art RPG that is set in the same universe as their previous game, The Messenger, uh, which was released in 2018. And uh, that was a retro, like an NES style retro platformer that evolves into a Metroidvania. Um, and the, the, the storyline here takes place about a thousand years earlier. And it was, it was inspired greatly by uh, classic SNES RPGs like Illusion of Gaia. There's a lot of Chrono Trigger here. Uh, and I mean, you gave it a very positive review and you were not alone. This received a remarkably positive reception from critics. It sold apparently a hundred thousand copies on its first day, which is really, really nice to hear. Yeah. I was super stoked to see that response, not both from uh, the other critics, but also the, the sales response, because uh, as you might guess from the score that I gave the game on our site, 95 editor's choice, uh, I definitely think it deserves all those accolades because it is a fantastic experience. Yeah, this is a very high scoring episode. We have a 98 and a 95. Um, see, I, I loved The Messenger. I actually, I played them through The Messenger uh, during a rather dark time. Amanda was working, she was working uh, on a construction site up north doing uh, just protecting turtles, essentially. Uh, and she was only home like two days a week. Uh, so I was kind of staying up super, super late in the dark playing The Messenger. And it helped me get through kind of a difficult time. I thought it was a great game. Um, so when I heard they were making an RPG prequel to it, or not even a prequel, just set in the same world, I was like, okay, this is even ignoring the amazing graphics and the, the style of it and everything. I said, this is something I definitely want to play. Yeah, and I've actually, I've never played The Messenger. Um, it's not the kind of game I think I would have been interested in before playing Sea of Stars, although I'm definitely more interested in playing it now. Um, and I will say on that that front, even though it is set in the same universe and it's a distant prequel to The Messenger, um, and the, the uh, Sabotage just has said that you know you will notice little nods here and there if you've played The Messenger. Uh, you they have also said you don't have to, and I can confirm that I don't feel like I miss out on anything significant during my playthrough, having not played The Messenger. Um, uh, so you know I, I don't think 
players have to be worried about like, oh, shoot, do I have to play the messenger first to to play Sea of Stars? No, I would say go ahead and play Sea of Stars and then probably like me, go go and buy the messenger. Yeah, it's not a sequel. It's, it's just set in, set in the same world. So there are touches. You might recognize a few references, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that will work both ways. When you play the messenger, you might, you know, recognize some stuff from this game. Um what was your first reaction to the trailer when it was released? Oh, it was like a breath of fresh air. I don't remember mm. what game show it was part of. It might have been like an E3 or sort of in that sort of vein of, of like, you know, the summer rush of game shows. But I just remember it was, you know, in the middle of a bunch of other trailers that I don't remember. I don't remember any of those shows. I just remember <laughs> seeing this, you know, brief little window of beautiful pixel art rpg you know goodness and i was like oh wow that looks really cool i like i love the art style i like the idea of what they're showing here and oh it's got it's gonna have music by mitsuda in -hmm. it too so like you know that's another checkbox if you're gonna do like a classic art homage to classic rpgs you know get mitsuda to do do some music (laughs) um so yeah, it was like, you know, it's immediately shot up to be one of my, okay, I need to find out more about this game. I need to put this on my list of games I needed to definitely play in one of my most anticipated games and uh, started following it. And, you know, uh, that was a couple of years before it came out. So it was long enough to feel like, oh, I, I want this game out now. Um, so when it went finally, when we got the demo earlier this year, I was like, yes, it's finally happening. And now it's out and it's finally happened. And it is, I will say, I, I mean, every bit, I think, as special as I was really hoping it would be. Uh, it's interesting because the demo got some mixed receptions from people. Um, and I, I was, I think I was talking to you, or I saw your messages on Slack, and you, you mentioned that part of the reason might be it was a, it took it just a, a little slice out of the game that was completely out of context. It didn't work quite as well when it was out of context. Yeah, I think that the demo was great from a gameplay perspective. It was a great little slice of a little exploration. You go to a town, a little dungeon, a little fishing, but because it was in the middle of a quest. Um, the characters had are the, the characters that you saw had already all been introduced. In fact, they skipped over the introduction. They 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 introduced they started you at the start of one of the islands and then skipped over a bunch of uh, time that you spent getting down to the town. Skipped an introduction to a bunch of characters mm-hmm. and didn't that didn't quite work as well because the story was just like oh go get go meet these pirates. So, so you can go to this other island and, oh, the pirates want you to go to this dungeon and get this thing for them. And it was like, well, why do I care about the pirates? Why do I care about going to this island? Why mm-hmm. do I care about the main characters? I don't know anything about them other than like what, you know, we Valer and Zale are solstice warriors and Garl is their best friend because that's what's on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just it, it didn't quite work from a story perspective. But in the main game, you have a couple hours before that point to get to know Valer and Zael and Garl and understand why they're doing what they're doing. The pirates get a much better introduction and quickly are, are you're endeared to them. I love the pirate crew. Uh, they're super awesome and they're great. They're great musicians because they're the ones that play the, uh, the, the band uh, that you can collect music for. Um, so it works better in the uh, the, the main game. And it works better in context. Yes, in context. Which I mean, you know, that's that's the tricky thing about if you're going to create a demo that is 
a, a few hours into the story, you know, you you got to pick the right moment. And I mean, maybe I, I don't know that they necessarily could have picked an earlier moment that wouldn't have had the same problem because the opening chunk of the game is, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of story uh, progress for you. Yeah, a lot yeah. of setup. So they couldn't really start you at the beginning of the game. You wouldn't get a whole lot of gameplay if they wanted to do the same sort of like amount of hour uh, demo. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, I get why they picked that chunk. It just doesn't quite work from a story perspective. But luckily it works in the context of the game. Once you get to that point in the game, you're already much more invested in the characters uh, and what you're doing. So it, it, it works and it flows better. Okay. But what is the... What's the setup here? Like what, 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 I don't want to get too deep into spoiler territory, but what's the plot? So the basic plot is you play as, well, you play as a bunch of characters, but the main characters (laughs) are Valer and Zael. They are solstice warriors. These are people who are born on either a winter solstice like Valer or a summer solstice like Zael. And that grants them special, uh, uh, solstice ability so valer being born on the winter solstice she has moon magic that she can use in her 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 attacks and zale being born on a summer solstice has solar magic that he can use in his attacks and what's special about solstice warriors is they are the only ones who can fight these super powerful and really kind of freaky nightmarish level uh enemies called dwellers these are monsters made by the ultimate big bad of this world, the Fleshmancer, who we don't know a huge amount uh, in the early parts of the game. We just know that he is uh, an immortal alchemist who uh, basically, for whatever reason, went bad guy and decided to create all of these bad guy, you know, monsters under him. And the only people who can fight him are Solstice Warriors. So Valer and Zael are on a quest. Uh, at the beginning of the game to take out the last dweller uh, in their world, which is mainly composed of uh, little islands that have um, nice sort of bite-sized chunk islands that have, you know, a town and a couple dungeons and a really cute little, you know, SD world map for you to walk around Hmm. with an occasional fishing point. Uh, And they are joined on their quest by their best friend. And his job is listed as warrior cook, because he is not a solstice warrior. Um, he doesn't have any magic, but he is a good chef and he is their tried and true best friend. His name is Garl. He is the heart of the party. I love him to death. He must be protected at all costs. And I dare anyone to not like Garl. I like, you know, have your other opinions about the other characters, but if you don't like Garl, I'm looking at you side eye because <laughs> he's immediately endearing just like i mentioned the pirates really quickly endear themselves to you garl is just he is a really fun nice guy so uh so that's that that is the the basic plot is basically they're trying to fight these dwellers and the fleshmancer and there's more involved like there's there's background that you learn about solstice warriors about the fleshmancer about the world and you actually kind of learn it through this really interesting mechanic. You meet a character named Teeks who will join you at campfires 
And if you find items uh, in the world, you can give them to Teeks. And she has a magic book that can actually sort of like draw out the story from those items. And then she has a story she can read to you. And it's always, mm-hmm. usually it has something to do with an area you've just been to or a villain you're dealing with. And it's a little background, a little lore. And it was a really cool way to learn more about the world and the characters without needing to like have all of that exposition be in cutscenes. That's pretty smart. Uh, what's the writing like here? Because in The Messenger, uh, which same developer, same lead writer, uh, I thought the writing was extremely solid, but it was also uh, very self-referential. There was a lot of fourth wall breaking moments in that game and uh, a lot of referring to video game history and its source material, which is like classic NES platformers, Ninja Gaiden being the obvious uh, uh, source material. There were a lot of references to that. Uh, can that style be found here or is it a much more, is it telling Is it telling a story without winking to the audience? Let me put it that way. Uh, there's some fourth wall winking. Um, there's a couple of characters who make comments about like, you know, the standard process of how do you find new gear in RPGs? You just keep going to the next town and there's always a blacksmith there that just happens to have slightly better gear than the town before. And uh, I, I I thought that was funny. I actually really enjoyed that. It's not, um, you know, having not played The Messenger, I can't necessarily compare mm. uh, the amount, but it was... It, it, it didn't feel like it was excessive. It was every once in a while for comic relief, you'd have a little meta comment from a character, but the majority of the dialogue in the story um, is is focused sort of in the the real. Um, that doesn't not to say that it's always like super perfect. There are typos uh, here and there, some punctuation errors, uh, a couple of spelling errors. Um, nothing that brought me super out of the experience. Um, and some of them, honestly, uh, I just kind of like eventually reached the point where I was like, well, you know, it's a retro inspired RPG and there were text errors in retro RPGs. So <laughs> that kind of tracks. Um, yeah, there is a point though, where I kind of feel like, guys, put your script through Grammarly. Jeez. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, like, I, I don't know. I, I, I find it's a little weird because I am, you know, uh, uh, usually, pretty hard on grammar mistakes and I've done copy editing for us at RPG fans. So mm. I am very eagle. eyed I, I noticed the mistakes, but it never, like I said, it never, it never seriously impacted my enjoyment. It was just like, Oh, Oh, there's a comma missing there. Or, Oh, that word has an extra letter or whatnot. Um, and it, okay. it, you know, I don't think it's a big deal. Um, your mileage may vary. I, there's been some discourse about this. I think it's overblown, but your mileage may vary um it just it it didn't bother me that much mm. and enough for me to just point it out hey there are occasional typos not enough to mar the experience yeah um part of the reason why i was asking about the i guess the, the references is that do you mind do you mind a couple of spoilers for a five-year-old game uh i don't does the audience mind well, we'll find out. I'll, I've in the last episode introduced a new thing, which was the spoiler chocobo. So this is your spoiler chocobo warning. And I'll make a uh-huh. thing. Um, oh, that wasn't a bad chocobo. Um, so in the messenger, uh, the game starts out as a pretty solid NES clone, very similar to like Shovel Knight or something like that. Like the game looks like an NES game. 
And then as you continue, like at the end of every level, there's a boss and you gain story like that. But then at the midway point, uh, literally the game cracks open and you get sent to the future and the future is 16 bit and the world is in 16 bit. And at that point, the world opens up and it becomes a Metroidvania and you can switch between the 8 bit version of the world and the 16 bit version of the world. And you're going through all of the levels, like the self-contained levels that you did before, they all of a sudden become a Metroidvania map. So very, very reliant on someone being somewhat familiar with the Nintendo, the Super Nintendo, 8-bit graphics versus 16-bit graphics and the styles of the games at the time, uh, which is why I was asking about here, is there anything in this game? Because clearly there's it's pulling a lot from, well, Chrono Trigger comes to mind, for example. Like, are they are they making any references to the platforms that these games would have been on? Or is it is it played relatively straight aside from like little references where it's, you know, the, this is an RPG. Here's what you do in an RPG kind of thing. Uh, there's nothing fourth wall breaking, like what me- the messenger does with regards okay. to uh platform. There's no self-awareness of the game being like, Oh, this is a, uh, I guess we would call this a 16 bit RPG styled after classic 16 bit RPGs. Okay. Um, beyond just the you know the the general level uh, quality of the pixel art and i think you know the most meta is like i said a couple of characters just making uh you know jokes about standard rpg tropes um especially in older rpgs Mm. uh and then you know the the real meta i guess of having a chrono trigger inspired rpg that has uh 10 uh, tracks composed by Chrono Trigger's <laughs> yeah. composer. So, yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about what it's like to navigate the world of this game. So there is a classic RPG-style world map, beautiful, you know, like a little diorama-style kind of thing. Uh, what's it like navigating that, and what's it like navigating the areas? Uh, so the, I mean, the world map is, uh, you know, chipified, uh, and you you move around a little slowly on the world map um, as as one might to sort of convey the the distance you're traveling. Um, it's the world map is, a, you know, it's really pretty to look at. Um, you know, it's if I had one criticism of moving around the world map on foot, it's that. Uh, Sometimes your characters feel a little bit less responsive because of the style of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because of the, the way the world is designed, it's a series of islands as opposed to one big continent. Um, backtracking can sometimes be a little bit of a pain. Um, a lot of times you will find that you have to go back into an area to, to, to move through it to go to the other side. And if you had to go somewhere that's on the other side of a forest... You probably have to go through that forest again, and that can be a little bit annoying because while you can, uh, there, there's no random encounters in the sense of like you just, the screen flizzes out and you're in a fight. You see enemies on screen and combat begins if either you or an enemy touch each other. So you can try to avoid enemies, but it's not always super easy to do that functionally, and there's no way to escape battles when you're in combat which doesn't annoy me when i'm going through an area for the first time but if i had to go back through an area because i'm backtracking that can be a little annoying so eventually there are ways to avoid that like you eventually get access to a ship um mm-hmm. you, you've probably seen that i think in the launch trailer and before they showed that um so you can sail between islands um and that lets you uh 
get back a little bit easier to certain areas. Although there's still a couple of instances where it's a little weird that you have to backtrack even with access to the ship. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, I, I love, I did love the ship. Like the ship is a really cool, like it's a little, it's something you get relatively uh, early on. I guess I'd say you get about a third of the way into the story. Whereas in a lot of, uh, you know, RPGs getting the, uh, the ship, like an airship in a Final Fantasy game would be yeah. in the last or past the halfway point of the game. So you get the ship earlier on and it just, it, 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 adds to the charm of the world once you can sail around this world map because you can see the entirety of this. And it's not, you know, it's a, um, it is a 30 to 40 hour, hour RPG. So it's not like this is a huge world. It's very manageable, uh, very, you know, in, in kind of bite size in that sense, but it's just really fun to sail around and just see how the way the art works. Um, uh, and then you can also just explore your ship once you get it. And that's also kind of fun because it becomes Ooh, that's neat. your ship. And uh, you can also, the pirates are there. So they're also playing music. <laughs> and um, like I said, you can collect music and you can actually then tell them which songs you want them to play. So you can actually sort of like, oh, I want this little shanty or I want that one. And they're all, they're all arrangements of music from the game, which is a really cool thing. Like they composed a crap ton of music for this game. Yeah, it sounds like it. And then also did like an entire crap ton of, of band arrangements for the pirates to play, which I thought was really cool. Um, and there, like, I won't spoil there. There's the ship's not the only way you can sort of more swiftly travel across the world map. There is another way you get to travel. Uh, but that's very late game stuff that does, that does help a lot with backtracking as one might expect in the last few hours of the game the, the the world map opens up more so that you can get to places more easily and there are there are hidden secrets there are places that you won't be able to get to earlier on in the game like either because you don't have a ship or because you don't have a certain ability or because the map needs to change a little bit for you to get there so there's uh extra things to do and find if you're willing to go back after you know every so often to see if uh, i have this new ability i can maybe i can get this this thing that was taunting me on the map the first time i went there <laughs> yeah so and that's uh, that's you know uh, i mentioned in the review there's a tiny little bit of a metroidvania in this game because you do get a couple of uh accessories items uh, equipment sorry that you uh, as you progress through the game that allow you to manipulate the environment for puzzles or for tra uh, traversal. So for instance, um, you get a grappling line that lets you uh, attach to distant uh, platforms or climbable surfaces. And that does let you progress through er areas in different ways. So you might be able to find some hidden treasure uh, mm -hmm. that you couldn't get to before. Uh, it's also helpful for helping you to initiate combat. Uh, if you grapple to an enemy, you you get an uh, you get a first attack on them and you initiate combat, and that can be uh, a really handy way to just start a fight. Um, hmm. So yeah, so there's there's that element. There's that sort of like get a new tool, find new stuff. Uh, but the game itself was really, I think, you know, one of the more interesting elements of gameplay for me was when you're exploring these worlds, you're not just, it's not a sort of linear experience where all you can do is run around and run into enemies and click on chests and whatnot. There's uh, a verticality to the world where you can jump and climb and dive and swim through the world. And there's, a you know, it's, it's not like a true, uh, platformer in the sense of like the the um the one-to-one -one response you would get from 
a platforming game uh, where you can just jump at any time and uh, you know maybe has more action RPG combat where that kind of movement is important. It still kind of feels uh, you know like it's trapped in this 16-bit environment, but it's a really neat way to give the environments a lot more depth to them, like both both literally in terms of verticality, but also just in terms of the richness of how you interact with that environment. And it makes exploring them more interesting because suddenly it's not just, well, I have to go from point A to point B. It's like, oh, well, how do I get from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. And you might have areas where you have multiple uh, uh paths you could take depending on which way you want to go and they also you know they play with that in terms of like well you know if you want to find all the items in this area you'll have to do a little bit exploring and that'll involve climbing this cliff or involve walking across that tightrope or going uh down a a whirlpool to find stuff at the bottom of, of of a lake or something um so they they utilize that in interesting ways to help exploration feel uh, a lot more uh, dynamic and a little, a little bit action oriented. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, your solstice warriors. Um, you have uh, control over time of day, which is another cool little element to this game. There's real time dynamic lighting and shadows. So uh, there is not. It's not a true day night cycle in that time does not progress at a steady clip. If you just stay in one place it seems like it randomly progresses as you move from area to area but in certain circumstances and eventually at will you can change the time of day to whatever time you need to be and this can be useful for various puzzles that require a specific time of day or just if you want to like you know you want to explore this area at sunset or you want it to be nighttime Mm -hmm. so that adds a little extra spice uh, and and beauty to the world, and you know the world will will change dynamically depending on the time of day. Even the music will change a little bit in most areas depending on whether it's daytime or nighttime. That was a really nice touch, I thought. Yeah, this makes it the second retro RPG this year that has both day and night cycles and different mu- and uh, variations of songs for both. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's just talk about. I mean, you were talking about the dynamic lighting, so why don't we just pivot to the graphics, which would be, I would say, one of the game's biggest selling points. Uh, it is, I mean, God, if you like pixel art, it doesn't get much better than this. Yes, I was constantly, every area that I went to, I just, I probably spent more time than I should have in every area just because there's so much to see. And it's just, I'm, it's one of those things where like, I have no art skills. So, you know, regardless of the style of game, uh, everything that I see is is, be, is beyond my ability, but there's something special about pixel art. I feel you know compared to the more hyper realistic uh, games that we have. That is just it, it's like so, let's just uh, picking a name at random, Starfield. Yeah, like like Starfield, which does look uh, very pretty, uh, and I definitely want to play it. Although, um, well, I, I won't I won't derail. I have an interesting way I'm going to play Starfield. Um, but yeah, there's just something so immediately warm and cozy, I guess I'd say about games like Sea of Stars with these pixel graphics. Cause, and I mean, like part of it, a huge part of it is nostalgia. Um, there's, I mean, there's, there's no getting over, you know, away from the fact that, uh, I think a lot of us are old enough to remember the games that Sea of Stars and like, you know, uh, last year's Chain, Chain Echoes were inspired by. 
Um, so there's a comfort in that sort of in that reference, just in the, the the style of the art itself. But it just it's so pretty, and the 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 the, the, the decision to go that route and you know have all these little touches like the wind moves the the, bla- the blades of glass uh, blades of glass blades <laughs> of grass and your characters have idle animations and things like that as you move and just seeing some of the animations of the enemies which are all uh, as far as i can tell they all look very hand drawn and and uh, very pretty like that um there's just something very comforting and hmm familiar about it and it does definitely remind me of some of the earliest rpgs that i played uh so i mean as i think it's intended to it will definitely i think draw people back to the day the good old days of snes and maybe some early ps1 rpgs as well um but i don't think there's anything wrong with that at all oh no yeah like i mean i think nostalgia for nostalgia, say I, I know some people might be like, you know, oh well, that's just nostalgia talking. Like a game should be new and different on its own merits. It shouldn't be referencing what came before it. But that's kind of like that's part of the human experience in general. Like even yeah. outside of video games, we're always about referencing what came before and celebrating what came before. What 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 came before that was good and fun and that we have fond memories of. And I think that this game specifically, but just, you know, the pixel art uh, direction in general kind of evokes that feeling of like, you know, remembering when you were a kid playing Chrono Trigger or mm-hmm. uh, when you were, you know, like, you know, playing for me, Super Mario RPG was like one of my, it actually was my first RPG that I ever played and had a kind of a similar sort of uh, graphic style and a similar sort of perspective in terms of how the environments are, pre- are presented. So, and you know, that's not the only way that this game obviously is referencing Super Mario RPG, but you know, from a graphic perspective. So, like, yeah, I think, I, yeah, it's. I, I, I obviously I, I could keep going uh, on and on, so I'll stop. But yeah, there's something special about the art in this game, like. You know, depending on, regardless of however you think else about the combat or the story or the music, I definitely think this is a game that you will look at and just immediately say, wow, I want that. Mm -hmm. I want to play that. I want to see more of that. I feel like nostalgia has become a dirty word to some people. And those people who say that, I think, can go to hell. I'm sorry. (laughs) The the reality of the matter is, okay, let's just take, let's just take Super Nintendo and uh, Genesis RPG. Okay, let's just take Super Nintendo RPGs. the reality is that, yeah, they were pixel art, obviously, and some of the best pixel art ever created, Final Fantasy VI, uh, Chrono Trigger. For the most part, with certain exceptions, this style of game vanished and was supplanted by polygons. I mean, Final Fantasy VII, the original Final Fantasy VII, is gorgeous in its own way, but it's, you know, this style of graphic didn't really continue past this. This style of game didn't continue past this. Um and it's only been in the last few years as, you know, pixel arts started to make a comeback, especially for more indie games that don't have the budgets for uh, an infinite number of pixels, uh, that we've been getting to see where this style of pixel-based RPG can evolve to, what what heights it could reach if it kept if it kept evolving, if it kept moving. Right. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. Like, we've moved beyond that point where pixel art was a necessity because that was mm-hmm. the the height of graphics or that was what was capable of a developer 
uh, and we've moved to a place where now we can have pixel art by choice for mm -hmm. artistic reasons. And it's there's so much valid, uh, uh, so much of that is valid, I think, just as a design decision from a developer. Oh, it completely is. Even if this wasn't meant to be in you know a in their own words a retro inspired RPG or a modernization of retro RPGs as they mentioned on their Kickstarter, uh, I think you know the choice to use this art style just for its own merits as an art style as opposed to well this is the limits of what uh, game systems and PCs can do now and this is the limits of what we can program. Um, this is the most realistic we can get. No, we, we don't have to be hyper realistic. And there's, no. there's art can come in so many different ways. And I am glad that we can have a game that looks like this coming out the <laughs> same week or well, for early access purposes, the same week as a game that looks like Starfield and is going mm -hmm. for a much more hyper realistic, uh, but also sort of, you know, Na NASA retro, uh, kind of, uh, art style, which, uh, I loved that aspect of um, uh, of Noah's review, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I did too. Um, I, I think I'm just a little bit salty because I've been reading a lot of internet comments this week, uh, which is never a good idea, ever, yeah, ever yeah. a good idea. Uh, criticizing, I mean, we talked about it, we talked about it a little bit with uh, Noah, but uh, and also it was with this game too. And it just seems like there's so many people on there that are just trying to crush people's fun and say what you enjoy isn't legitimate. Um, and I'm not even talking about reviews and and some people disagreeing with reviews because reviews aren't objective pieces. They are, you know, they are opinion based. They're they're reviews. They're opinion based. But I don't see anything wrong with someone enjoying uh, Sea of Stars because it genuinely does remind them in some way of Chrono Trigger. And it, because of that, they can pull it. They climb into it like it's a like it's a warm duvet. And it's really nice and comforting, but at the same time, it advances the formula and does its own thing in interesting ways as things should. And I mean, I've seen some people comment on how like, I don't know, let's just bravely default is, oh, it's, it's just, it's, it doesn't do anything new. And I'm like, well, it kind of feels like what Final Fantasy could have evolved into if Final Fantasy VII had never happened. Um, there are all of these different evolutionary directions that these games could have taken. And indie gaming specifically has allowed some developers to explore some of these, uh, these what if these un uh, untraveled tale, uh, these untraveled paths of what games could have become. And I feel like this and Chain Echoes and other games, retro style games, Octopath Traveler, are exploring those paths not taken. Yeah, I think you know variety is the spice of life. Like we we have enough games that are totally new things and you know unique experiences and whatnot. We don't not everything has to be brand new and pushing the boundaries and uh, not referencing what came before, like uh, having experiences like this alongside stuff that's totally new is part of what's so great about any form of entertainment, but especially mm -hmm. video games, because I feel like video games more so than uh, arguably other medium are hyper aware all the time of what where they came from and what came before. Um, you know, partly just because of the virtue of, well, we have console generations and we have PC uh, part evolutions and stuff like that, that makes it necessary to pay attention to both where we are and where we came before. But just like, you know, like I think developers clearly and gamers too uh, 
think a lot and enjoy a lot of thinking about like, you know, what they were playing last year, 10 years ago, decades ago, remembering it fondly and finding new ways to, uh, to remember that in what they, in what they, what they make, what they play, but also to push forward. Like it's, when, I don't think we're ever going to reach this point where nostalgia is dead. Oh God, no. Well, we're actually, I mean, we're running out of time and this is a long freaking episode, but that's because these games are so freaking interesting. Um, I suppose I want to ask you a question about this um, being, it's one of several retro style RPGs this year. And I guess late last year too, although Chain Echoes was really late last year. So I'm just going to include it this year. Um, so like there was Octopath Traveler 2, there's Chained Echoes. These are games that as we were talking about, kind of evolve the formula of a SNES RPG. They look vaguely like it. Um, what sets Sea of... But incidentally, you love Chain Echoes. You gave it a 90. Um, but what sets Sea of Stars apart from those for you? Uh, well, so, I mean, I guess um, there's there's the obvious, like, you know, the the visuals, obviously, you know, even it's still retro inspired, but there's, there's a distinctness to the visuals of Sea of Stars that and to you know the the basic sort of gameplay premise of being able to uh, run and jump and sort of have that kind of uh, more mm-hmm. tactile experience with the environments. Um, that's a really hard. Question. I understand why it's a hard question because yeah. it's, I was thinking about it as I was answering it. It's not. I'm not saying that Sea of Stars is better than Chained Echoes or is better than Octopath Traveler Two. I just mean. In it, because we were talking about it a little bit there about nostalgia and all that stuff. Why? What would you say Sea of Stars delivers that is original? I guess you could say, or is it just, or does it just do stuff that we've seen before, but does it extremely, extremely well? That's a hard question too, because <laughs> you could you could make the same argument for every game. None full of hard questions. Yeah. Today. Um, I, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think it's the full package with Sea of Stars. Mm. Like, it's hard for me to to pick out one thing because i mean a lot of the individual elements we've seen before um the pixel art is gorgeous uh but there are plenty of rpgs even like you know retro rpgs like chain echo that also have beautiful pixel art um the story uh is definitely there's there's twists and turns to the story it's interesting i like the characters but at its heart it is very much sort of like your classic uh good guys versus bad guys versus like sort of evil mage kind of uh, <laughs> character. And there are some late game plot twists that will absolutely tickle, uh, I think, uh, Chrono Trigger and Final Fantasy VI fans. Um, some unexpected developments there. Uh, the combat, you know, uh, which we didn't, we haven't talked about a whole lot. Uh, the combat is, to me, very um, uh, Super Mario RPG inspired. Uh, with uh, uh, the whole sort of the main mechanic being uh, timed hits and blocks, um, Mm. but also uh, different uh, uh, locks for you to break based on uh, attack types that can reduce the damage or cancel enemy attacks and a little bit of strategy that involves because eventually the game gets good about making it so you can't possibly break all of those at once and you have to make decisions about which enemy attacks are most important to get rid of. Nice. and of course, you know, having um, ha- not only Mitsuda's involvement, uh, uh, which obviously screams back to his Chrono, Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross, I would say, 
uh, days, but also the the uh, the rest of the music from Eric Brown. Um, there's a delightful, like definitely audible, crunchy retro synth style to a lot of the, uh, the, the his music that felt really neat for uh, inappropriate for a game that is <laughs> styled as it is. Um, but I mean, like, yeah, it's it's. I don't know that I can point to any one specific element. It's just the whole package. It really comes together. It really comes together. It put a smile on my face as I was playing it. I felt like, as much as I loved Chained Echoes, and I really do. Like, it's it's hard. Uh, it's it's an. I know I've seen a lot of discussion about it. I've been thinking about it in part because I reviewed both games. Like, you know, if I had to pit the two together, what would I say about it? Um, and it's hard not to because they're similar in their inspiration and wearing that on their sleeves. And they both came out within about a year or, well, uh, you know, less than a year. their give or take. Yeah, uh, of each other. So it's hard not to make that sort of comparison. And it's not, this is not a knock against Chained Echoes, but I, I really felt with Sea of Stars, I could viscerally remember playing classic mm. SNES rpgs and ps1 rpgs i could feel the love and the the homage that this uh that is being made to those classic experiences as i played this game and it put me sort of a little bit in my mind not you know not like i completely transitioned to that point in my life when i was playing those style games but sort of in my mind space a little bit it just put me back to where i was when Mm -hmm. i would have been playing those classic RPGs. And there's something, there's so many games that try to do that, whether it's with RPGs or another genre or a specific RPG, and they may or may not be successful at it, but I really feel like Sea of Stars really got that that niche uh, mm-hmm. that really dra- draws you back into that time, um, which maybe, you know, depending on like, you know, how old you are and how long you've been playing games maybe hasn't been that long but for someone like me where it's been decades since i actually even owned an snes i don't i haven't owned an snes uh in a long time uh there's something really special about that and to do that all while still introducing more modern elements the the graphics the um the traversal things like that making it feel uh, not like it was so much of a callback that it was stale and old and didn't have mm-hmm. anything valuable of its own to do or say, which is a really hard tightrope to walk when you're you know, making a game like this that is supposed to be a callback to something that came before. How do you, how do you make it a callback but also make it its own thing in the present? And I think mm-hmm. they did a good job. There's not to say that there aren't some issues with various different things. I mean, I mentioned a few uh, points that uh, annoyed me. I've seen other people who've been playing the game point out some things that annoyed them. So it's not like, you know, it's not uh, a flawless experience, but right. then again, neither were the experiences on the super Nintendo. We just kind of remember them that way because of nostalgia. <laughs> yeah. Well, Thank you, Caitlin, for coming on and uh, reviewing this game too. I know that you were really looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it too. I think it's going to be, I think it's, it just looks gorgeous. It just looks so good. Um, it's really a struggle this week because we have two games that are, I mean, both have star in the stars in the title, but they are extremely, extremely different. We have mm-hmm. this Western RPG that is uh, a Bethesda, a Bethesda style Western RPG that is very divisive. This, I would say it's, it's been divisive and we have sea of stars, which seems to be pretty universally 
uh, embraced by uh, certain quarters. But at the same time, there have been those who have said, well, it's just, it's just nostalgia bait. Um, personally, I, I mean, I think that people who say this is just nostalgia bait are either they're either not paying attention or they are trying to advance their own agenda because clearly it's not. Um, and some people who are, you know, grabbing onto every single bug in Starfield and saying, look, Bethesda hasn't changed. Well, it's, it's apparently less buggy than Baldur's Gate 3. So, you know, maybe shut the hell up because you're advancing your own narrative by just selectively latching onto news stories. Um, I probably shouldn't be telling my audience to shut the hell up. I'm not telling you to shut the hell up. I'm talking to that other person, that other person listening to the podcast, shut the hell up. <laughs> Um, in the meantime, if you'd like to find a way to support us here at RPG Fan after that little tirade about our audience, <laughs> we've opened please, a store. Please love us. Please support us. We love you. We do. We please do. take us back. <laughs> we do. You can find everything at www.rpgfan.com shop. We have lots of stuff. We have mugs. We have magnets. We have t-shirts. We have lots of clothing. We have, as I keep saying in every single podcast, baby onesies because the baby onesies are hilarious. Uh, so please check that out. If you want to support us here at Random Encounter, you can do so by checking out our past episodes. We have quite a few of them. Uh, last few weeks, we've been really delving into some games that I don't want to say we ignored, but there was a lot of big stuff coming out the last few months. So it was it was good to try to get back into the, the smaller games. Uh, in Retro Encounter, we just had a two-part Disco Elysium episode, and coming up is The Return of Solosi. Solosi's back. Uh, we have an episode later this week called That's Edutainment. Uh, I was on this. It was a blast to record because we got to remember our days in the elementary school computer lab playing games and being taught computers by teachers who didn't actually know what computers were. So uh, that's edutainment. Uh, we also have Rhythm Encounter, which is RPG Fans Music Podcast. Last week was the very best of PS1 uh, RPG music. Uh, some really, really great tunes there if you, if you like nostalgia. Uh, and then next week, we are doing underrated Final Fantasy tracks. So that is really, really cool as well. Just, there, you know, there's so much great Final Fantasy music that sometimes some gets a little bit eclipsed. So these are going to be some tracks that you might, you know, you'll recognize, you'll know, but, you know, it might not be the first thing that comes to your mind when you listen to Final Fantasy. If you'd like to get in contact with us here at Random Encounter, you can fire us off a message at podcast at rpgfan.com. I would absolutely love to hear from you. If you have any suggestions for future episode ideas, uh, discussion questions, we didn't want, we didn't do a discussion question today because... I mean, look at the runtime. Obviously, we didn't do a discussion question today. Um, if you'd like to send me an email personally, you can do so at jlogan at rpgfan.com, or you can find me on Mastodon at Logan at mastodon.social. Uh, I am not the only person on this podcast with a online presence. Noah, where can we find you online? Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and, and other places, mostly at Noahpolitan, uh, sometimes with an under, underscore at the end. Uh, and Caleb? Uh, you can email me at caitlina at rpgfan.com. You can also find me on our Discord server where I help moderate. Uh, so don't be bad. <laughs> no, that's that's very, very true. Uh, so uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it with your friends. You can help us get the word out there. You can rate us on iTunes, your other podcast players of choice. You can leave us some reviews. Again, Caitlin, Noah, I really want to thank both of you. These were not small games. Uh, we were They were under embargo. You both did a phenomenal job getting through all of them and getting the reviews up in time. So I, as the review manager, tremendously appreciate that. And as the host of Random Encounter, I tremendously appreciate you both coming on to talk about them. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you. Okay. And uh, to everyone out there listening, to everyone who is uh, willing to give me your time for 
however long this episode ends up running. I think it's probably going to run closer to two hours than our usual one, but uh, please thank you very, very much for listening. There are so many great games out there. So whatever you're playing right now, have fun.